<laughs> we good? We are good. Hopefully I have enough battery power in the Coravin because that uses nitrous to extract the wine. I think we should be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Homespun Yag, folks. Uh, today we're going to be talking, well, I don't know, uh, uh, um, on video. We have video. And I guess, audio. I guess, and audio. Yeah, it's true. Um, if you if you're watching this, you might be able to see a few of the different wines that Kyle has hand selected. Our master. What term would you use for that? Somebody, I'm just a wine consultant. Wine consultant <laughs> for the for the wine consulting. Uh, so yeah, we're going to be talking about a lot of different wines. I think we've been talking about this for a few weeks, just doing some uh wine tasting and uh kind of having a comical difference between the amount of knowledge you have and the amount of knowledge that I have on this particular topic so much so <clears throat> as a matter of fact that Kyle has notes on uh, a few notes on a variety <laughs> of different uh wines so yeah where I mean, do we I, begin i don't know i mean i just there's really no rhyme or reason to the selections that I've made to try today, but I think it's enough diversity. It's all red. Um, ah, yes. But it's enough diversity between old world versus new and then different varietals. That Just we'll like trying. the Old Testament and the, <laughs> new, and Testament. the new Testament. <laughs> and in case anybody didn't know, there's red wine and there's white wine. Go yeah, ahead. There's white go, wine. Go on. There's orange wine. There's sparkling wine. <laughs> okay, you're, you're going way <laughs> above my level. <laughs> but but to touch upon old world versus new yeah. world. Yeah. So old world, when you hear that term in the wine world, it's referring to basically anywhere within Europe where mo- where modern okay. winemaking as we know it originated. Actually in Georgia, they believe. Not the state, but the country of Georgia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I saw you were confused there. Um, but yeah, Old World, France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, um, which I actually have examples of all of those countries today. And then New World is everywhere else, not just North America, South America, but South Africa, Australia, and anywhere else in the world that grows wine. And now, India and China are planting more vineyards, and England is as well because of global warming is enabling a lot of producers or a lot of areas that were not really conducive to certain types of grapes growing. Now it is conducive, and they're making some pretty pretty nice world-class wines in some regions you might not be familiar with yeah. um, that are known for wine. But um, is there When you talk about England, would you consider that old world still? I think they would consider it old world because I think they've made wine there for quite some time. I mean, they've always been heavily involved in, you know, the wine markets throughout the centuries. I mean, they've kind of dictated like pricing of Bordeaux and port from Mm -hmm. Portugal. And the English have always had a really good sense of, you know, good wine and they want to bring good wine in from Burgundy, Bordeaux, really high-end places. So they've always had like a really good respect for wine, but they've always been a little bit too far north to produce a lot of quality wine. But now they're actually able to make um, 
sparkling wine that's rivaling the quality and taste of champagne. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're growing a lot of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir grapes that um, they use in champagne to to make champagne. So, and is there a lot of rivalry then between New World and Old World? Not a lot of rivalry, but there is a lot of difference in the way people make wine in the New World versus the Old World. Mm -hmm. Like there are very strict and rigid laws that have been in place for centuries in places like France, Italy, Spain. And there's been certain producers who've been there all this time, and they're going to make wine the same way they've been doing it with the same grapes. Um, And it's just very strict and rigid law. That's why when you see a a European bottle, typically it's going to have the place rather than the name of the grape and it's just different laws as far as labeling even because mm-hmm. um, they want to respect the place name first right like bordeaux or burgundy champagne you're supposed to know as the consumer if you see bourgogne rouge or something like bourgogne village um you're supposed to know that's pinot noir even though it's not going to say it on the label this, they've just been doing it that way forever. And you're not allowed to call it this thing if it's a different grape that's outside of that specific law mm-hmm. that says, like, this region is this grape, and you have to age it for this long in this barrel, and then you have to let it sit in the bottle for this long, and then you can release it. But it has to have this particular label. Whereas New World, it's a lot more experimental, like, in California, you can just throw on the name of the winery and then, you know, Cabernet, you have that on the label or whatever you want to put on the back, all the different blends, percentages of the grape, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of like the beer industry as well. I mean, if you look at Germany, they have a really um, strict and rigid system in place since like the 1400s. They actually still have the document somewhere in Munich where it's like, these are the ingredients in beer. Yeah. You can't go outside of that. And each like town and each city has like their specific beer that they're known for. And they're like, that's all we're going to do, mm-hmm. which is great because it's like, it's super pure. They've nailed it down to a science. You always know it's going to be good quality of this particular wine or beer from this region. Um, which is awesome for consistency and, you know, just aging wine if you want. But then, like, in the new world, you have your advantages because you're not bound to a specific rigid system of laws. Yeah. So you're able to experiment, and, like, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But, like, just like the beer scene in the U.S., it's like we're going to throw in everything we want, and maybe it'll work, whereas there, they're like, Please don't do that. <laughs> we would hope you wouldn't do that. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely differences in new versus old world, but doesn't mean that one is better over the other. Like, there's certain varieties, and when I say varieties, I mean just the type of grape you're using. The varietal is like a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Pinot Noir mm-hmm. Chardonnay. 
and um, a lot of those n- grapes are known as like the noble grapes, like what I just mentioned, because yeah. you're able to grow these grapes all over the world. They're a- they're easily transferable to different climates, mm-hmm. different soil types, different regions. And that all is en- encompassed in a word called terroir, which the French have coined, which is like <laughs> soil, climate, winemaking, you know, the certain microclimate in the vineyard. And mm-hmm. if there's rocks around, if there's an ocean nearby, there's all these different factors that influence how the, the grape is going to express itself in the glass. And you could do a Cabernet from Napa Valley versus a Cabernet dominant wine from Bordeaux, and it it might taste wildly different. It's the same grape, but then they, they say, well, yeah, because terroir is different from these two areas. doesn't mean one's better, but it's just cool to see how the same grape can express itself differently in different parts of the world. Yeah, that is really cool. There's a, there's a lot of nuance that goes into that then. Oh, yeah. I don't know how they control all that, but... Uh. Yeah, I mean, it just gets down to the finer details of like, you know, are you organic or are you biodynamic or how are you... When are you harvesting your grapes? What soil type? How long are you aging it in barrel? What type of barrel? Are you doing barrel aging at all? You know, it's just up to the winemaker's discretion at that part mm-hmm. yeah cool well i'm ready to learn yeah so what so, are we doing so we'll, how does this we'll, work <laughs> <laughs> so i've got let's see i got uh six different wines and just kind of gonna go in order because they're all reds of things that might you know go from sort of light body to fuller body more tannic Okay, you're going to, um, as we go through it, you'll have to explain what, yeah, I'm, what yeah. I'm tasting. And some of these I haven't even tried before. Okay. So we'll see. Um, and actually, we're going to use a Coravin because a Coravin works well when you don't want to drink the entire bottle of something that's nice. Not that all of these are really nice, but a Coravin enables you to um, extract a little bit of the wine and it leaves the um, it leaves the cork intact. Um, so basically, you've got a needle here that punctures the cork, push it all the way down, and it's just powered by a nitrous oxide tank in the bottom. And so, Nick, if you'll be kind enough to put your glass up, this one, this one, yep. yeah, yeah. So nice. do this, and I go like that. Oh, that's pretty cool. And it kind of runs out. How does the nitrous oxide, do you know anything about how this nitrous oxide works? So it just kind of pulls um, the wine up through the needle and mm. pushes it out. So it's a little, um, it's like a little capsule that you unscrew this piece and you pop it back in. Okay. And um, I'll pour mine as well. Yeah, if you're listening to this, you can uh, you can watch this. Uh, and actually see what this looks like or we'll post something on instagram or some social media like a youtube link or something yeah something like that and so basically just pull it right back out and you want to use a coravin um, pretty much only if you know the cork in the bottle of wine is an actual cork 
made from uh, a cork oak tree. Um, and why does that matter? Because the natural cork will, when punctured, um, will once you pull that um, needle back out, it will kind of enclose back hmm. a little bit. So you you still have pretty much an intact cork so that oxygen is still really not getting in as much. Mm. Um, even though you've got now less wine in the bottle, you're able to keep this bottle fresh for a little bit, lo- little bit longer. Mm. So, you know, if you're going to finish a bottle with somebody within a day or two or even three, I mean, might as well go ahead and open it. But this is good for like a special occasion wine or if you want to make a bottle last for like a week or two. Um, but if you look at this bottle, um, Saint Saint Jacques Ultrea, you wouldn't be able to tell no. really what this is at all. Um, and this is a wine from um, Raúl Pérez, who's a producer in the northwestern part of Spain, just above Portugal. Um, okay. In a region called Bierzo. Yeah, um, that's as far as my geography goes. And it gives you, with Spanish wines, it gives you like a little um, map on the back. Oh, yeah. With okay. like a little, they each have their own little unique um, color and little, yeah. little design. Um, so he's a he's a uh, producer. I don't really know a ton about him in particular. I got this wine from my buddy Rich, who's a, a huge fan of all his wines and um recommended this one but this is um uh it's a blend but it's a mostly a grape called mencia and that's a and that's a grape that is grown really well because of the conditions there it's kind of a lighter bodied red wine a little bit more juicier fruit forward fresh easy drinking it's not mm-hmm. going to be like super harsh with that sort of bittery aftertaste that lingers so that's basically coming from the tannins which are extracted from the grape skins and seeds and stems you get that kind of grippy um bitter texture um, that comes from that which gives it a little bit more of its longevity in those bigger bolder wines okay yeah i guess uh if you were to taste something that's aside from the grape or when the tannins also come from the seed, mm-hmm. yeah. So I mean, if you bite into a grape seed, it's extremely bitter. Yeah, that, exactly. That's like exactly that what it is. I mean, it just it goes back to winemaking um, because you bring all the clusters, the berries in from your harvest, mm-hmm. and a lot of people have different techniques of of how they want to get these grapes to get, start fermenting to fermenting into grapes to alcohol. Um, and basically that process is yeast is introduced, whether it's inoculated yeast, meaning they bought yeast from a specific yeast manufacturer for this type of grape that works really well with it, or it's just native natural yeast that is within the winery that's just been built up over time and in the wine and actually in the um, vineyards itself. Um, a lot of people use that because they think it's like, it imparts a specific flavor as well, the yeast will, yeah. to that area. And you can look at like places like for beer, like Belgium, they do natural yeast fermentation, like wild yeast 
to where it's like really if you try a beer from this specific part of Belgium, like Trappist beer or um, sour beer from Belgium, it doesn't really taste like any other beer in the world. And they think it's definitely because of what strains of yeast they're using um, to inoculate um, and start fermentation. But that's beyond the point. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I can go off into different tangents, but um, the way they did this is they do whole cluster fermentation predominantly. So they take the berries and they basically throw them in the stainless steel fermenter. But they don't really press the, the juice to just... They don't press the berries to extract the juice. Um, they just kind of let the, the berries sort of disintegrate and ferment on their own. I got you. And that imparts like a juicier, fresher sort of taste to it. Mm. Um, I'm assuming that takes quite a bit longer than y- as well. Yeah, it can take a little bit longer. Um, but they do that in Beaujolais as well. That's why you get the more fresh, lively quality from Beaujolais which is um, in Burgundy in France and a lot of people like Beaujolais around this time for Thanksgiving but um, but yeah a lot of people you know don't really know because it's funny when I pour rosé or anything like that they're like well how's rosé made you know it's not really red it's not white Mm -hmm. it's kind of in the middle yeah but um, all grape juice is clear, no matter what color the berry is. So basically the color of the wine comes from the skin of the grape. Hmm. So they crush all the juice, like say in a Cabernet, um, in a tank, and then, they, and then the skins of the berries will rise to the top. So basically what they do is they kind of just pump periodically the skins down throughout mm-hmm. the um, the juice to give it that bigger red color. But with rosé, they cut it off quick, so it's only like a lighter pink color. Um, so you don't have that really grippy, tannic quality of a really big Cabernet. Yeah. Because the longer the skins sit on, the more those tannic qualities will express themselves, and you get a darker, fuller color. So... I mean, with this one, you can kind of look and see that it is actually a darker, a really darker color. Sure. But we'll go along and see the differences between some of these. Right. They're all red, but they're going to be a different shade of red. And based on how old they are, that could impact it as well. And what Does type it make it red, red or darker if it's older? Actually lighter. Lighter, uh-huh. okay. Yeah. Um, maybe like a more brickish, br- even browner color okay. sometimes, just depending on how old it is. But this is this is a 2017 vintage. And when people say, what vintage is this wine? Basically means the year. Yeah, I was about to, was so, about to ask. So yeah, if you see, hear somebody <laughs> say, oh my God, that was a great vintage in, you know, in, <laughs> in Sonoma, that was just, oh, that was a banging vintage. You're like, Okay, now that's the year, but then what does the year mean? It just means 2017 and the fall of that year is when they harvested the grapes for this wine. Hmm. doesn't mean that this wine came out in 2017. It almost certainly didn't because 
um, they aged it for a little bit of, of time in in barrel before they bottled it, and that usually bleeds into the next year. I mean, with some wines, they age it for five years in barrel, and then another year in the bottle, and then so you all see that wine like you know for five plus years in the market and it's already got that age on it already right so and the aging process somehow makes the quality of the wine better just depends on what wine it is okay um you've got opinions from all different types of people i mean you probably want to listen to the winemaker you know they're what they say about their own product but um you know the bigger wines higher quality fruit, you know, more care in the aging process, they would probably encourage you to wait a little bit longer in the bottle because, you know, more things can kind of react together over time to make that a little bit more, to express what they want it to, basically. Hmm. Some, it's like you want to drink that pretty quick. Okay, because it it goes bad or not bad but just it's just worse taste yeah i mean some is just not built to age okay um some is just made to be consumed pretty fresh um like certain sparkling wines like you know just your simple easy proseccos cavas i mean you can't sit on those forever but like champagne you can like vintage champagne you can sit on for a long long time Hmm. and um yeah just it just depends um, on what, on what that is, but, um, but yeah, you can go ahead and taste this first wine if you want. Okay. And then I've got, I've got these, um, so basically this is the first wine. This is Raul Perez Ultrea St. Jacques. Um, this is a Spanish wine, so an old world wine, but we've also got spittoons, AKA cups. So don't be offended if we spit the wine out. Doesn't mean we don't like it just means somebody might have to drive or you know you can drink it too if you want it's just <laughs> well i'm gonna start out spit, drinking please yeah if you like it enough drink it i don't i mean i don't care obviously it's just for here <laughs> just want to explain yeah. it to people so they're not like why are you spitting wine <laughs> no that makes that. complete sense so why do people spin the the wine in the glass so that's just like an instinctive thing for me okay. already but like <laughs> you become integrated <laughs> into the fold um it releases the aroma um, a little bit oh, opens okay. it up a yeah, little bit more that. to oxygen. Yeah. Okay. So you want to just get it around your glass, look at it a little bit. I mean, you can like kind of look at the sides of the glass when you after you've swirled it a little bit. Okay. And um, you yeah. see how it's got a little bit of a line there. Yeah, I do. And there's not really. You'll see the difference when we do some of these others, um, but you'll have like sort of tears that come down. And the more tears you see from that line, more people died. More children died, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Um, So if you leave it, you'll see, you know, tears start to to flow down. I definitely see it. Yeah. And that can be like um, the viscosity of the wine, the the thickness, or it can be um, a sign of kind of higher alcohol. Okay. um, In a wine, so this is thirteen and a half percent alcohol so if it cries a lot and there's a lot of alcohol (laughs) that could be a sign but that's never something you're like oh my god let me look at the 
the tears on this thing. Like that's not <laughs> that's just just explaining every aspect of it initially. Right. No, I get but it. You, but people typically, you know, they'll swirl it, they'll look at it, they'll inspect it, just look at the color, generally hold it up to like, you know, a white piece of paper or something. I mean, look at it and then they'll smell the wine. Okay, is this where we dive in? I, uh, not the the um, smell, but the... Uh, it does look really nice. It's close to my favorite color, actually. Yeah. And you'll see, like I said, the variety of different, you know, wines that we go through. You'll you'll notice differences in red. Right. You know, based on what we're drinking. Yeah, right. But, yeah. Swirl around again. It always, it, it, it always smells like just smelling it will get you drunk. Which is not because you can like, get a little bit, you know, on the higher alcohols, you can get that kind of burn a little bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, That's what I mean. If you kind of go into too deep on it, but mm. a little bit of raspberry, a little bit of blackberry. <laughs> okay, <laughs> here we go, folks. A <laughs> uh, bit of pine tree, mm. I would say, uh, rusted wood, peach. Cobbler. Okay. Like sort of bake spi- baking spices. Yes. Yeah, right? <laughs> That's a compliment, yes. <laughs> but what I say to people, and I'm no by any means expert at all. Um, You're the expert here. Here, maybe, but um, if you like it, then it's good. I mean, you know. Well, okay, I, I can tell, get behind that. Yeah, I can't tell you what is you know, I can recommend things that I like and, you know, there's certain areas that are known for quality, but if you like something and I don't like it, it doesn't mean it's bad. You know? Oh, absolutely. I think. And then some work better with food as well. You know, mm-hmm. you're not going to get the full quality of what the wine can be unless you have it with food and even vice versa. The Italians would argue. And you can, you can certainly understand <clears throat> why, this takes so much time to learn because I mean, you're talking about color, you're talking about taste, you're talking about smell, the viscosity, right? Uh, mm-hmm. When you're talking about the tears yeah, and whatnot, the texture, the texture, and then throwing that on top of like food, mm-hmm. then you have to test all these different wines based off, off yeah. of food as well. I mean, it's just trial and error and, and based on, you know, I've been in this particular industry for, little over four years now and I still haven't really scratched the surface on you know everything I could possibly taste but I've definitely gotten a really nice overview of most of the you know major wine growing regions in the world we represent a really big portfolio so I've been lucky enough to try a nice diversity but it's just there's so many things out there you know that it's cool to just be able to compare and contrast yeah, and it, it just keeps, I mean, obviously it's never going to end. Yeah. It's just going to continue to evolve. <clears throat> just like a wine can continue to evolve in the bottle and in the glass. You know, you could fill up a glass of wine and over the course of 30 minutes, from the first sip to the last, it could be vastly different, you know, smell-wise, taste-wise, because our wine has interacted now with oxygen to a level where it's, kind of infiltrated that wine and 
and changed it, hopefully for the better. Right. So that's why a lot of people want, like to decant wine um, before they serve it. It's just those bigger, bolder wines that are that seem very tightly closed mm-hmm. upon opening, but you need oxygen to let them breathe, let them open up to express what they really are. Yeah. I mean, understandably, like from a chemistry standpoint, it's just undergoing a redox reaction, but I don't really understand what, you know, that does in terms of like your taste and all that stuff. Yeah. It's really interesting. How long do you usually, like if you're going to do a first taste on something, how long do you usually keep it in your mouth? Do you swallow um, or spit you can, it? You can um, kind of swish it around in your mouth a little bit because there's di- different parts of your tongue will detect different sensations and flavors. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, a few seconds, you know, because you want to do that and then you want to swallow it just to get the full spectrum right. um, of taste. Um, but this one is just, you know, you can tell it doesn't linger too long. I mean, it's pretty easy, pretty fresh, pretty lively, just, um, something that's pretty easy drinking. I think it's pretty versatile. You could pair it with food. You could drink it on its own. You could even put a chill on red wine. Um, that, that is like, you know, your Beaujolais, your Pinot Noir, your lighter bodied reds, Hmm. even a little bit of a chill will bring out that, um, fruit um component and just make it a little bit more juicier and and easy drinking um Hmm. so that's just kind of a cheat code with lighter bodied red wines if you haven't tried it before please do Um, not ice cold obviously but like slightly chilled Hmm. a lot of people are like oh my god red wine cold like that doesn't make sense but you know it's it's drastic. It can temperature can have a drastic, a drastic effect on the quality of the wine, the taste, everything too. Right. Temperature, the type of glass you're drinking it out of, the quality of glass. I mean, there's just just an endless amount of factors that can impact the wine. But um, you know, that's a pretty fresh, easy drinking, dry red wine. That's yeah. pretty. It's pretty uh, versatile. That's a good one to start out with. But this is an old world example, um, but pretty pretty good. Because it's from Spain. Because it's from Spain. Yeah, learning. Yep. <laughs> so now we're going to go to New World, another light-bodied red wine. This is 100% Pinot Noir from California Okay. from a place called Sonoma County. And within Sonoma, there's an area called the Russian River Valley, which is really well known for awesome Pinot Noir and um, really nice Chardonnay. Because there you have a nice, let's see, there's a nice diurnal temperature change, which is really what you want with any wine growing region. You want kind of hot. You know, throughout the growing season, you want it to be really sunny, hot throughout the day. Mm-hmm. But then you also want kind of a flip. And at night, you want it to cool down pretty drastically. So it, ha- it can have pretty consistent, you know, temperatures of 
that are pretty high during the day and then it just drops off like pretty heavily like here is not a great like we're in durham north carolina right now it's piedmont region of north carolina is just trash for growing wine <laughs> because it's just in the summertime you know when all your stuff is growing it's just blazing hot like and it right. does not yeah. really cool off the that much in, at nighttime you know mm. there's no chance for the grapes to kind of cool down whereas in certain areas that make really really great wine you have that really diurnal severe shift in temperature um, from day to night so that's a huge impact as well hmm. is that this is i guess p potentially jumping ahead but uh we're both fans of Tool, and we talked about how uh, Maynard, the singer of Tool, has his own winery, and his wineries, I believe, in Arizona, mm -hmm. I believe. Is that why uh, he would yeah. want to do it there as opposed to, well, like you said, North Carolina? Well, yeah, so he, where his winery is in um, Wilcox, Arizona, which is in the southeast part of that state, He's at like 4,300 feet in elevation. Okay. I didn't so know he's that. already high up, um, but you've got a ton of sunlight exposure right. during the day. And then because you're at such high elevation, you're going to get that um, typically cooler nights, you know, um, a nice diurnal shift. Right. And when you're in high elevation, you have wines that tend to. Um, develop really nice acid when they actually turn into wine because you know they're not overly ripe because they're not able to ripen fully due to exposure con consistently at a um, cooler temperature um, that's why well that's just enough conversation but um <laughs> You know, you have your sweeter, riper, fuller wines like Zinfandel that require a more humid, hotter climate. And certain parts of California that are famous for Zin, it's a little bit more hotter, more of the year. Mm -hmm. um, and Zin likes the grape. Zinfandel likes that to develop into really big, bold, juicy, like over the top more smoother not as not as dry but not necessarily sweet it's just a little bit more rounder kind of texture to it and that has a lot to do with the temperature of where the grapes grew hmm. so this one uh so this is from a producer called fela um and it's fela uh, yes okay. from sonoma county this is all pinot noir and you can see I mean, it's translucent. Yeah. Um, it's a light-bodied red wine. Pinot Noir is always going to be that lighter kind of strawberry red color. Right, yeah. And, and even there's going to be notes of strawberry, raspberry, sort of the lighter red fruits, not more of that, you know, blackberry, you know, darker um, fruits that you would get with your bigger cabs, your Zen, your Merlot, things like that. Mm. And Pinot Noir is a really difficult grape to grow um, because it does like kind of cooler climate, but then you also have to have kind of nice sun exposure too. It's a really finicky grape, but when you get it right, it's really amazing. 
And that's not a grape that really translates well all over the world, um, like maybe Cabernet does. Like Burgundy is typically the benchmark for Pinot Noir in the world. Everybody sort of initially started out wanting to replicate those wines and find areas that best have that, you know, have that similar climate, soil, um, sun exposure, um, everything. And um, they've actually found in in the Willamette Valley of Oregon is a pretty pretty similar kind of um, latitude as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're they're making some pretty world class Pinot Noir there now. So I think when you look at France, especially everybody initially started out like I want to be like Bordeaux or the Loire Valley or Pinot Noir, and then they just kind of took that and now they're kind of coming into their own in certain parts of the world. Yeah. So France will always be like the number one place that people will look to for, you know, the original inspiration to wine, Hmm. in my opinion anyway. Yeah, it's funny. So we'll try this now. First, I need to check how many children died. (laughs) Not as many. Yeah, I, don't, I was going to say, I don't, <laughs> I don't see as many. This may be a... Folks, this is a more ethical one. Yeah, it could very well be. Just like this. I see a few tears. But you can see in the color a little bit lighter. Oh, it definitely the, smells. The first. Dif- yeah, yeah I can definitely smell now, different. yeah. Huh, that's really cool. I mean, because this is the first time I've actually sat down and tried to... Yeah to just tell a difference right yeah and yeah th- that hit me straight in the face yeah. oh i like this one the smell of this one mm-hmm. a lot i'm not doing any <laughs> fancy <laughs> fancy tricks <laughs> hmm did you notice any like this one seems uh lighter to me it seems uh in a manner of speaking, friendlier, mm-hmm. as in like the last one, More I smelled it. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I smelled it. A f- I smelled the other one a few times, and it, it really rocked me, the, yeah. my nose. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, even when I kept it in my mouth, that's why I asked you how long you keep it in your mouth, because I kept it in my mouth for a little while, and it stung. Like right. I, could, I could feel yeah, my could, taste buds kind of yeah. go off. With this one, it's got really nice acid, so you'll be able to kind of on the sides like kind of light up a little bit yeah. a little bit more um, expressive in that way but very smooth but dry but very smooth yeah for sure I think it's um, I think it's smoother than the other one to me at least I like the other one too but yeah. this one's a lot more gentler more elegant, would you More say? More elegant, one <laughs> might say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and Pinot Noir is an incredibly food-friendly wine. But, um, you know, as you can tell, you could drink this one by itself, even with a slight chill on it. True. Really nice. Yeah, yeah this is a killer wine. Um, Just didn't kill as many children. No, not, as, not quite as many. Yeah, I could really smell this one for for a while, mm-hmm. and it would it wouldn't be rocking me in my face every single time. 
That was a really pleasant smell. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. Like almost like floral. I mean, you can get certain like types mm. of flowers that would come out in, in certain wines, like violets or roses. Right. Um, different fruits, you know, different spices. I mean, you can go on and on. I'm not at that level yet. But yeah. just no, the yeah. fact that I was able to tell a difference was exciting yeah. enough for I me. I mean, you would you prefer the second one than the first, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd say so. I completely get what you mean about being able to pair it with food yeah. and being able to drink it just on its own. Yeah. I mean, with your drier wines, I mean, like this, it's not like, you know, drying out your mouth, but it just kind of is a nice, slow, you know, ending to this wine. Yeah, I can see that. Which makes you want to take another drink. You know, that's what sure. like really good wines with acid do. It just kind of makes your mouth water and just kind of keep wanting to go back but yeah it's the whole package with this wine and you got the nose and then the the texture the flavor everything is really nice and this is uh pinot noir from california from russian river valley fela pick it up it's probably 80 bucks (laughs) (laughs) um that's why i'm using the coravin yeah because i can show other people these wines how often do you show uh people different wines i mean every week yeah i'll show different people different wines i try to anyway Mm. because with our portfolio i mean it just it's impossible to try every single wine within a year's time and then by the next year you've got another vintage of that same wine that people are like oh let me try that and you can pick up the differences and it's like ah you know, this, this vintage was not as good as the last vintage. I don't think I want to bring it in. I don't want to work with it. Right. Or they could be like, wow, this is way better. And it's the same, you know, same price. It could be a lot of reasons why, you know, different vintages change so drastically. I mean, the primary reason is weather Yeah. will impact that, you know, scarcity of crop doesn't mean it's going to be bad, but, um, like, you know, you had the huge wildfires in California. Oh, yeah, that's um, right. Which devastated a lot of wineries and burned a lot to the ground. And some that it didn't touch at all were affected by smoke um, mm-hmm. because they were like, oh, we didn't get impacted at all. But then they they bottle the wines, they try the wines from that particular vintage, and they're like, this is the smokiest you know, Merlot that I've ever tried. And it's like, sometimes it's nice to have a little bit of smokiness in your wine, but you don't want it directly because of smoke, you know? Um, So they, they, even if they weren't impacted like physically at their winery, tons of wineries were like, we just have to dump this entire vintage. We lost it all. Yeah. Because it's like, you want to be pouring a wine and it's just like, nothing but a campfire you know which is not necessarily what you want in your wine maybe in your scotch but not in your wine yeah right so so the next wine we will go to our friend maynard ah cool merkin vineyards this is um so he does caduceus and merkin 
which I don't know if they're in different areas of Arizona, but it's all a state owned, um, meaning that he owns all of the property that he sources the grapes from. So they, they grow the grapes and then they pick the grapes and then they make the wine. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of people in a lot of places all over the planet, um, use people called negotiants who buy grapes from farmers and sell those grapes to wineries. Okay. Doesn't mean it's going to be bad, but it's just like, if you're a big winery, you want to buy from different parts of like the state of California to make Chardonnay or Zen or something. Right. But then your smaller, more boutique wines or even some big wineries own tons of acreage and certain um, vineyards that they actually tend and work year round and harvest mm. themselves and then make the wine too. Yeah. So there's a, you know, that's like negociant versus like all estate grown fruit. But um, Maynard, I think everything he does, he wants to be pretty much hands on from start to finish. Yeah. Um, I think he, he mentioned that in one of the podcasts. Yeah. So Merkin is like, he does Merkin and Caduceus, which I think Merkin is a part of Caduceus, but it's more his entry-level wines. Mm -hmm. And I think his wines retail anywhere from like 20 to maybe 80 bucks, like for his highest wine, maybe not even that high. But the cool thing is that this is a wine from Arizona. Um, and he does a really good job. Like, I'll show you comparison between this and then like a wine from Italy that we'll try. But it tells you the winery itself, the actual, what he calls this particular cuvee, mm -hmm. which is this particular wine, which is called Chupacabra. Okay. Um, and then on the back, he tells you what varietals he uses, um, where the vineyard is that he sourced from, what percentage of grapes he used like a fun little story about this particular wine, um, how he fermented it, how long he aged, what type of oak he used. I mean, you don't do any of that in like France or Italy. It's just like this, is what it is. You just need to know what it is. If you don't, then <laughs> don't buy this. Like they could care less, but, um, he's got, you know, his website, everything on here. Um, but it's just cool because Arizona is not necessarily a place that you would associate, you know, quality wine right. with. I mean, in, in the U.S., you think of California, obviously. You think of Oregon. You think of um, Washington. You know, New York even now. Um, but Arizona, New Mexico, they have that kind of higher elevation we were talking about. But... This is a, a blend. This is Chupacabra. It's a blend of Grenache, Syrah, and Morvedra. This is, these are typical grape varieties that are grown in the southern Rhone Valley of France. I don't know if you've ever heard of Cote du Rhone, that particular no. type of wine. But a lot of them are generally a blend of these three grapes. These are okay. grapes that are... I don't know if they're necessarily indigenous, if you can trace them back to the Southern Rhone Valley of France, but this is like, these are grapes that are just staples there. Mm. And a lot of people 
just call it like a Roan blend, a Roan style blend. So that's like his attempt at um, basically a, a Cote de Roan or a Roan style blend, but now in Arizona. So mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see how. It's a, because it's, it's just a, because of it, just the fact that it's a combination. Grapes. Yeah, a combination usually is um, mm. a blend in that part of the world. Um, but those grapes are very prevalent. Those red grapes are prevalent in southern France. This one looks like it's more cherry-like. The color? Yeah. So let me ask you uh, a hypothetical question related to, to wine. If, uh, if you had the money to do it, would you consider opening your own winery? Or not, not your winery, I should say a vineyard. That's right, vineyard. Yeah, I mean, it would definitely be cool to be able to do that. I just think you need millions of dollars. Well, that's why it's a hypothetical yeah. question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I would love to be able to experience the actual production side of it. Mm -hmm. um, because there's so many moving factors when it comes to that, I think it would be amazing to see like you cultivated something from fruit to now beverage. Yeah. And just to see how your hard work paid off. Um, and to put your own kind of unique spin on it, you could be way more experimental and you don't really have to answer to anybody, which is a really appealing thing. I mean, you own it, so. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely like the baller move to do. Like billionaires are just like, yeah, now I own this vineyard in Napa or something, and they'll just throw up incredible winery up from from nothing and just hire all these people. But it's more of a status thing because definitely, rarely will you be as profitable, you know, straight away you know, from creating a winery, especially in like Napa Valley or somewhere like Willamette Valley in Oregon. Um, you know, it takes a lot of years to be able to establish the marketing, the brand, you know, the, dis the distribution points of your wine to actually start making a nice profit. So you already have to be just insanely loaded now to be able to do it. But yeah, I think I would, for sure. Okay, so branching off that, where would you place it? Mm. Now that we know the information that we know. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, maybe in Oregon. I just like the wines from that area. It's a beautiful place. Mm -hmm. There seems to still be a little bit of area now. It's not as commercialized as places like Napa or any of the bigger wine regions in the world, maybe Washington, close to Seattle or something like that. Um, I mean, Argentina's all would always be nice too. Chile. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, maybe those those areas are like what kind of jumps out to me. Okay. Uh, I like wines from Alsace a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do mostly white wine there. I don't know. I could, <laughs> I could keep going, but those are probably the main things just off the top of my head at this point. 
Yeah, because cool. I really love the wines from those places. Yeah, I was just curious. Yeah. So yeah, this is a GSM is what people refer to this. Grenache oh, yes. Syrah Movedra. GSM. Getting one of those for my computer. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's again. I can Seems tell a the little difference. Bit more like perfumed. It yeah. It's like you have to more let cherry. Yeah. It's like you have to let your your nose uh, catch up. Yeah. Well, not catch or up. Process the information. Pro- process yeah. for sure, and it's like this. You're like a have to let it the smell die off before you go for another. Yes. No, yeah. I mean, you, you swirl it a little bit more, opens it up a little bit, and you come back to it. Hmm. Hello. How are you? <laughs> There's a great uh, guy. God, I can't remember his name, but he does these scotch tastings. And he's, I have seen that guy. He's amazing. Yes, I have seen that guy. He goes all out. He's like, you come back. Yeah. I'm very well. How are you? And he's like, taste it. He's like, mm, 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 mm. Yeah. <laughs> With scotch, that's not an easy thing to do because it will just burn your nose off yeah. immediately. But that's a whole nother tasting thing that maybe we could do, is the bourbon side of it. Yeah. This one's got some thick tears. A lot of obese babies were killed. <laughs> I'm trying to place my finger on like how I would describe this. I think perf- what you said, perfume seems mm-hmm. seems perfume, pretty appropriate. I mean, there's some cranberry in there. And there's uh, some, I could I could smell that. Yeah. But again, it's one that's pretty juicy, pretty bright. For sure. Um, but it has that kind of bittering finish. The, the tannins are a little bit grippier now when you kind of let it linger after you've tasted it. Just your tongue is a little bit more bitter post-taste. Because <clears throat> he tells you that he's using French oak to age this wine in for 11 months before it goes to bottle. And the oak actually imparts that flavor. It can impart the texture as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of people use oak to kind of mask, you know, if a wine is not that great or something. But really, you want to use oak as a harmonious blend between juice and wood. And really the only types of oak that producers want to use are either French oak or American oak. Um, Sometimes in Italy, actually we're going to taste one that uses Slavonian oak. That's interesting. Yeah. This one seems a bit, a bit more dull, not, not in a bad way. It's just a little more subdued. It seems like Mm -hmm. than at least the, the last one that we had. And this could be one because of what the varietals are. 
you know, might need a little bit more time in the glass to open up or could need some food to complement it a little bit more. There so might good. be a little, little more peppery to this one as well. So challenge to you. If, <clears throat> if you had to pair this with a food, what would you pair it with? Um, I might put, pair it with... I don't know, pulled pork probably. It's not something that's, you know, over the top heavy. I can totally see that. You know. That's good. Not like a steak that might and might not work so well with, but yeah. pulled pork it might complement. Hmm. Oh, it's cool. It's cool to to taste something that Maynard made. Yeah. And uh, he's got his own signature here. He's really proud of it too. <laughs> Owner and winemaker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's got a funny little um thing about the chupacabra on the back here i'll let you read that for our listeners thank you kyle (laughs) chupacabra 2017 Mm. the trickster the shapeshifter the ever elusive shadow who mutates with the sun and moon one year a dragon another a snake this is our mystery blend Think forest, not trees. Mm. Think weather, not rain. Mm. Stare and the chupacabra who dwells in your heart and not in your head will vanish. Only a true alchemist can draw holy blood from a stone. And the chupacabra is our opus, our phoenix, our cherub, our child (laughs) (laughs) little yeah so there you go (laughs) he can put his own touch on it on the label so yeah that's a that's actually a big part of it is is uh labeling and branding and that has a huge impact on consumption of certain wine a lot of people who are not as educated on wine will just pick the one that maybe stands out the most i mean I'm sure he's calling me out, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Which is understandable. I mean, that's, you know, that's why marketing is a big thing, you know, and advertising is because they pop off the shelf. You're just like, "Ah, I guess I'll get this one. The pink one. one looks cool. I'll get it. (laughs) And so many people have told me, like, yeah, the only way I pick wine is by the label. Like, if it's cool, I'll buy it. Yeah. I mean, I... So that's a factor. That, I mean, yes, that's, it that's is a definitely factor. a factor. So, um, I mean, he he definitely <laughs> he he went over the top on that one, but you know, still, nonetheless, it's cool to try mm. wine that he made. Yeah, I like the front too. And yeah, and Maynard, for those who don't know, is Maynard Keenan of Tool, Pussifer, and Perfect Circle. Indeed. And if you don't know that, well. And fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> he said it, I didn't. And I'll um, stand by <laughs> So the next wine. Let's see. I wonder if we want to try the Merlot next. So we're now, well, we're still in the new world because we're going now to the infamous Napa uh, Valley, ooh. which... You've heard of Napa Valley. I have. All right. 
Yeah. A little story on Napa Valley and why it actually became so um, world-renowned as a wine-growing region um, is a story called The Judgment of Paris in the year 1976. Um, there is a man called Stephen Spurrier who is an Englishman who moved to Paris to open up a wine shop on the Champs-Élysées. Okay. Um, and he started basically for English speakers who lived in Paris for work or whatever, but obviously Parisians would shop there too. Okay. He wanted to carry, you know, best the best examples of wines throughout the world at the time and at that time it was like old world wines obviously dominated um, and that's what people knew and expected to see on the shelf and he um, started hearing about certain people in California starting to make like Chardonnay and French varietals Cabernet Merlot and he was curious, and he made a trip to Napa um, in the 70s um, and visited with a lot of different producers and tried all the wine and was so taken aback by how good the quality was that he was, like, telling people in France and in Europe, he was like, like, you have to believe me, like, these wines rival, like, the best wines from Burgundy and Bordeaux. Right. And um, they're like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Like, it's a bunch of hippies out there. And I mean, it was. And they were just doing, they are just growing wine or growing grapes and making wine. And uh, he decided to do this big blind tasting um, called The Judgment of Paris. But, well, it was, it was termed that after it happened in the papers. But it was like these master sommelier type guys that were French right. who they did a blind tasting of these incredible Burgundies, which white Burgundy is always going to be Chardonnay. If you see okay. Burgundy and it's, it's a white wine, it's Chardonnay. They did those versus like Chardonnays from California. Um, and they just had glasses with Chardonnay in it. And it was right. just like, try these four basically and rank them and unanimous unanimously they all ranked chateau montalena which is a winery in napa valley their chardonnay as number one mm -hmm. and the the remainder were like all these historic burgundy producers of that were you know like 800 dollars a bottle then Mm -hmm. You know, and they're like, oh, my God, like flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> and but it was unanimous. And then that was really and then they tasted some cabs and then some California like Stag's Leap Cabernet from Napa was number one. Mm -hmm. and these Bordeaux's um, lost out to that unanimously. And it was like, what is going on? And. That was called the Judgment of Paris, and that moment basically put Napa Va Valley on the map, and yeah. everybody started moving there to produce wine in the U.S. And, and even French producers, you know, went over there to make wine, and it is just blown up now. But that's really what made Napa Valley Napa Valley. 
That's a cool so, story. Yeah. yeah. So it's pretty cool how that, how that happened. But this is a winery called Arietta, um, out of Napa Valley. And this is, um, mostly Merlot. So in California, I think it only has to be 70% or 75% of a particular varietal for them to say it on the label. It could be the remaining could be a blend of Cab Franc, Cab, whatever. Right. But they can actually legally label it as Merlot. Okay. But I think this is mostly Merlot, maybe a little bit of Cab Franc. But, um, but yeah, this spends about 22 months in French oak before they bottle. It's definitely a lot darker. Yeah. You can tell Merlot is a thicker skinned, darker berry, basically. Ooh, this might be the most ethical wine we've had. <laughs> I don't see much te- many tears. But now when you when you look at oh, this I see wine, some. But when you look at this wine, like yeah. you know, it is not translucent. You can't really see through the center anyway. Yeah, of right. The wine. Right. Yeah, unlike that second wine that we had. Yeah. Hmm. The Pinot Noir always going to be a little bit lighter. And this is going to be darker in color and darker in aroma. You're going you're gonna to get more of the darker fruits like the blueberry, blackberry. Okay. Maybe even raspberry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like way richer. Yeah, like fuller. For sure. Yeah. And you get even get notes of like, I don't know. I get little, because it spends so much time in oak. This is 14.9% alcohol, but it's very, it's disguised very well. That's an excellent way to put it, because that first one hit me in the face, as I've mentioned a few times now, but this one. Really, I mean, this is a really great producer, and they, they only do a certain amount of wines, and they're really, really meticulous in making sure that the wines are really balanced. Uh meaning like from start to finish, it's really just a whole experience and it's not really misjointed or disjointed. Like you smell like alcohol really strongly up front and then you get some other stuff. It's like everything's kind of coming together nicely. Yeah. This is a wine where you want to stake with probably. Yeah. I can totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a great smell too. Like that second one, but I actually think I prefer this one. Well, maybe I prefer, I don't know, the second one smelled really, really it's good. It's just different, you know, it's just different occasions. Something different. has to be better, Kyle. I know. Something has to be better. <laughs> I know, it's <laughs> up to you. I'll ask you at the end, though. <laughs> you get even a little bit of that wood, like cedar. I mean, French oak is typically going to impart, like, notes of cedar, whereas mm-hmm. American oak is going to be more, like, toasted like vanilla spices kind of hmm. you get that kind of spicy element i feel like i need to breathe out as much as i possibly can just so i can breathe in as much as i possibly yeah, can. yeah i mean just keep swirling the wine and the, it'll just continue to i mean each time you go back you might encounter something new yeah hello (laughs) (laughs) 
are you? How are you? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'm getting a little bit of uh, like spearmint, menthol-y kind of thing. I don't know. Really? I mean, I'm of course going to defer to you, but man, it smells really good. Yeah, I want, I want to live it, you know? <laughs> yeah, this is one that's like, especially when you taste it, it's it's pretty powerful. Not necessarily alcoholic powerful, but it's right. just that warming. I mean, I'm still tasting it. It's still leaving an impression. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's that really bittering, like, now. Uh, yeah, that, that really <laughs> makes its presence known. Yeah. That's a really good one. Yeah. You're right. It's different. I can't necessarily say I like it better than the second one, but it's it's really good. I mean, you can now see. The yeah. Tier, like, I mean, it's just a higher alcohol wine, so it's going to. Yeah, now I see the tears, so. It disguises the fact <laughs> that it murdered children. Hmm. And then you've got wines that are single vineyard. And then you've got wines that just say the particular region so they can source from any certain vineyard within this geographical area, which can sometimes be massive. Yeah. So the price, the finer or the higher the price gets, the more selective you be, you can choose from kind of the fruit that you source, the quality of barrels that you use. It's just so many different, you know, reasons why a wine is more expensive than another wine. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> I think actually the owner, one of the owners of this particular winery was a classical music um, composer. So all of his labels have sort of like musical reference to it, mm. which is kind of cool. Yeah, is. But their goal is to, like I've mentioned before, um, be a Bordeaux style producer. So they're using grapes that you would find in Bordeaux. Like they were inspired by wines from Bordeaux. So there's five, there's there's grapes from Bordeaux, France, which is in the western part um, of that country, like the southwest. And they grow Malbec, Cab, Merlot, Cab Franc, and Petit Verdot. These are all red grapes that they can use in that area. Mm. And then they do certain white varietals like Sauvignon Blanc and Simeon and then they only grow those grapes here because they're like we want to kind of be Bordeaux style and Napa because right, we feel yeah. like we can put our own twist on it basically but we love that style mm. and that's what we want to kind of shoot for but yeah this is Merlot and Merlot got a really bad rep um, from the movie um, Sideways I didn't see that. 
Is that the movie? So, so basically the movie, so the story I told about why Napa Valley came to prominence, you can watch a movie with Alan Rickman called Bottle Shock where he plays that guy, Steven Spurrier. It's a really great oh, movie. Really? Yeah, it's funny. It's really good. And it's really historically accurate. Um, and then Sideways is a movie that came out like maybe in like 2000, which is a hilarious movie. It's a wonderful movie about a guy who kind of having like a midlife crisis and he's like doing a tour of Napa Valley and he like bad mouths Merlot really hardcore in one scene to the point where it influenced the market in Napa Valley to where a lot of producers just ripped up their Merlot <laughs> and they're like, we're going to plant something else. But Merlot is like a great, wine like people just it just goes to show how marketing and things can influence people but merlot's kind of coming back now um but merlot is like the, some of the most expensive wine on the planet when you look at the higher bordeaux producers that's really interesting yeah that's funny yep this is from a movie yeah sideways it's a great so. movie. If if no one's seen it, definitely check it out. But I have not. So now we go to the old world again. Ah, is this the Italian? This is the Italian. So Brunello di Montalcino. 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 <laughs> so by looking again at this old world label, can you tell me what we're drinking? Uh, no, but I know the vintage oh. is 2014. There you go. They put that right front and center. <laughs> so producer Altesino, uh-huh. Brunello is what they call the grape in that particular area. Okay. Brunello is basically the um, term in Tuscany or Montalcino for Sangiovese. Have you heard of Sangiovese? No. <laughs> <laughs> Educate me, please. Well, Sangiovese is grown you know, throughout Tuscany, which is central Italy. Um, central Italy. Okay. Used a lot in like Chianti. Oh, okay. Um, Sangiovese is the grape. Okay. Um, but they, in, in Montalcino, they call Sangiovese Brunello because it's like a Brunello is like a brownish sort of term. Okay. Um, Italy is insanely confusing because there's like, there are, Grapes that are also the name of towns in other areas. So you've got like Vino Nobile di Montepulciano. Mm -hmm. So Vino Nobile is like the grape that, or is the grape that they call. And um, Montepulciano is the town. But then you have Mon then you have Montepulciano di Abruzzo. And Montepulciano is the grape, and Abruzzo is the town. So you. people yeah. are people confuse those a lot, yeah. and it's just like whenever you see a label like this, like whatever D something after the D, it's like duh, because whatever. It's of, yeah, of exactly. Of yeah, Montalcino is the place. Um, you have to translate it through three languages: <laughs> duh, <laughs> of French, then English. Yeah, and Brunello is um, basically, like I said, another word for Sangiovese. And it's a 
in Montalcino, they have very high standards for this particular wine um, because there's certain aging requirements um, with this. Um, this spends 42 months in Slavonian oak. Oh, yeah, that's the one you were talking yeah. about. With the Before they bottle. And cer certain places in Italy like to use mm. Slavonian oak. I'm not really sure why that is, but I think it's more of a neutral kind of, it maybe imparts more of a neutral flavor, more it's just the texture that it gives it. Like you have areas like Barolo that for the longest time, it was like, don't even open this bottle for another 20 years. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you open it, it's just going to be like drinking sandpaper, basically. Jeez. Yeah. Just going to rip your tongue off because it's just not it's just not ready and then so many like the younger generation were like well we don't want to we don't want to like make people wait like you know 30 years to be able to like say this is a great bottle of wine we want to make wine where it's like yeah you can age it if you want and it'll get better but if you want to drink it now it's still going to be good it's still going to be approachable mm. um hey how you doing <laughs> <laughs> Come on in. You're pretty attractive. <laughs> so even even places within the old world, you know, certain areas you have pockets that they want to change because the consumer is changing. And like now you have people from China and India who are like the middle class is coming up and they're mm -hmm. like, we want to drink Bordeaux. We want to, we just buy you out of Bordeaux. Like whatever year this is at this place, like we want all of it. And now, I don't know. You just have to appeal to your markets. You kind of have to, in some way, you know, if you want to stay alive, but those really famous producers, I mean, they're not going to change because they don't have to, they're yeah. going to buy their wine anyway. But, um, but yeah, this is a this is a wine that is built to to age basically. If you you know if you want, this is going to be a wine where like ten years time it might not even be at its peak. But if you want to drink it now, you can as well. I can see why uh, you describe this as slightly brown. Yeah, I mean it's it's that kind of brickish, yeah, brownish color. Um, and even it'll get more extreme as it gets older, you know. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, to me, certain old world wines have a distinct quality about it. That's why, um, you know, when you want to study for these tough blind tasting exams, you kind of start at like, the bigger, you know, old world versus new world. What are the big differences there? Yeah. And some in aroma is like more kind of earthy quality to it, um, which is hard to <laughs> hard to describe. <laughs> like, <laughs> folks, just stick some dirt <laughs> in your mouth. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit dirtier. Yeah. love the smell of a wine yeah. and realizing that yep because they're so different but you they know are. it's yeah 
I think because it doesn't max out your senses. Yeah. In a way, like if you if you drink it, the alcohol can sometimes overcome your 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 taste buds. But when you smell it, you're breathing in a, a huge whiff of this smell, and it's not overpowering typically, except for that very first one that yeah. we had. Yeah, I mean, some are just insanely aromatic where it's like you could be here and it's like whoa but yeah. i mean not in a bad way but it's just and some are very subdued it's just it yeah. just depends you know this one has a steady air of alcohol not overpowering or anything but And I will say that across the board in Montalcino for this particular vintage, um, it was labeled as a failure. Was it? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Or just a below average year. Yeah. Um, not that, you know, it's just if you've had Brunellos for decades. Or as it's just I like, have. Yeah, it's just like. You're not going to know, really. I mean, if you had this one side by side, if we had a side by side with like a brilliant year. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. 2015 was just spectacular in, right. in Tuscany. If we had a side by side, I mean, it's the same wine, it's the same grape, the same producer, the same aging, everything. It's just like you might be able to be like, wow, that, that's definitely true. The, this year was way better. But I think most Italian wine, I mean, at a nice level like this one is pretty much meant to be enjoyed with some sort of pasta or, you know. I could see that for sure. Yeah. Because this is light enough, you know, but it's got that really so much oak aging to it where it holds up with a lot of heavier food, too. And a little bit more subdued, like I say, because this one is one where they want you to kind of hold the bottle for a long time. Yeah. It might, things might come together a little bit more, even in the glass, but certainly in the bottle over more years. Right. So it's like, eh, you, you, it might not be fully where it wants to be right now. We'll get you there, little bottle. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You need a bus pass. <laughs> I can I can definitely understand why wine tasting gets really complicated. I mean, there are just so many factors you have to take into consideration. And the fact that you're creating something that you really have one shot at in a year. You yeah. Know? And you just have to. Yeah, you got to deal with like, maybe we got a low yield. Maybe we dealt with a certain parasite, a certain fungus yeah. that wiped out a certain amount. I mean, maybe the weather sucked. 
And just so many factors you can't control. Yeah. Okay, well how how many how many factors can you control? Like assuming the worst scenario, right? Weather obviously is something you can't really control. And a number of different like a, a parasite, right? Yeah. Comes in and ruins part of your crop. Do you <clears throat> what factors can you actually control then to to try and at least curb it towards mm. a, a de- halfway decent line? Yeah, I mean, I think it just depends on how well you're connected in your particular community. I mean, can you, if you have a low yield, can you borrow grapes from someone else? Can you buy grapes from someone else? Um, you can control your winemaking technique. That doesn't have to change. Um, however, if you have a, you know, a yield of grapes that are lower in acidity than you want. You can acidify. Mm-hmm. Basically, you can add sulfur. You can add certain elements to the fermentation process or pre-fermentation process to get these levels up to where you want it to be. You can add sugar um, to wine to get the. Um, residual sugar amount you want because if the grapes don't ripen enough that you want you're not going to get those sugars to develop within the berries right okay so sometimes you don't have as much sun in the year and it's just like man we have to harvest now um but these are not ripe enough that we thought so maybe we want to add more sugar to the mix and You know, and that's never something that I think people want to do. You know, I think that might be a last resort. I think the bigger, more mainstream, cheaper wineries you find in grocery store, I mean, they add sugar all day long. (laughs) You know, they're happy to add whatever just to get it out, get it out the door. I mean, just throw all everything in. Right. Throw the leaves in. We don't care. (laughs) Throw in magic marker in. I don't I don't care. <laughs> we got to sell this wine. So it just depends. I mean, I think a lot of producers, you know, the only thing they can control is their winemaking technique, mm. really. I got you. And um, funny enough, a lot of vineyards in California, um, in Argentina, in New World areas, are actually older than vineyards in Burgundy and Bordeaux because of a parasite or a mite called phylloxera. I don't know if you've ever heard of phylloxera. I have not. But in the early 20th, late 19th century, um, phylloxera is this little bug that just kind of blew through European vineyards, just destroyed everything. And they tried to come up with ways in which to combat this. And they were like, because everything was getting destroyed. Like all these things that have been here for, you know, maybe 80, 200 years. Sometimes, in some cases, longer. um, Just getting wiped out. And um, I can't remember who, but someone was like, well, you look at American um, indigenous vines, like, so you've heard of like muscadine. Yeah. And that's like a, that's not a noble variety. That's like your sweet 
wines that will grow in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, Muscadine and Scuppernog and these really sweet. They sound like shit. They are. They are. (laughs) But you'll see that at the fair and like old people like it. And I mean, it's a huge industry. Like they crush it. Yeah. But, um, that's wine that like, yeah, we love the humidity. Like we'll, right. and, and it's native to North America, these particular, but they found like they're resistant to phylloxera. Hmm. So one guy grafted on America. So they grafted on Cabernet, Pinot Noir, these old world varietals to rootstock of these indigenous American varietals. And that cured it. Hmm. They haven't had an issue since. That's crazy. Yeah. So everything now is like has American rootstock, like not everything because certain areas like really arid, dry places, some places in Spain were not affected because that bug just can't survive in that area. But like pretty much just wiped out everything. Right. So it's kind of cool how that sort of saved the old world wines. Um, but there's so many things that can impact um, wine in a negative way or grape growing in a negative way. Yeah. So staying in the old world now in Portugal, kind of in the middle of the country, this is actually a wine that I saw we have a lot of in our inventory. Um, and it wasn't as much as I thought it would be because it is a wine from 1994 Hmm. from Quinta de Poço de Lobo. um, And this is all Cabernet Sauvignon um, from Portugal, which you really don't see. Well, I certainly don't see. I'm sure it's still grown there, but there's in Portugal, they're known for port, which is fortified wine, like more dessert wine. So how little I know about alcohol. I didn't even know that. Yeah, so port is fortified wine that's typically on the sweeter side and usually upwards of, can be 16 to 20 odd percent. Wow, it's impressive. Um, We'll keep a lot longer than your average bottle due to the fortification. Then fortification basically means it's, it's made like a normal wine, but then it's fortified with spirits like cognac or something like that to give it that extra alcohol percentage, the, mm-hmm. the different taste. Um, but it, an extremely popular style of wine in certain parts of the world and a fun wine to, to explore. Um, a lot of people like it with cigars and kind of in the wintertime because it's more of a robust style of wine Hmm. goes really well with dessert but this is all Cabernet Sauvignon um, but from Portugal and it is from 1994 is when they harvested this wine so really old wine Um, I didn't even know you then no no did not was barely alive that's true (laughs) so if you look at this I mean, you do see kind of that brown yeah. color. A darker brown, for yeah. sure. Hmm. Yeah, it's just um, as wines age, they 
kind of fall apart um, a little bit, but not fall apart, but it just, the color seems to, to fade a little bit as the oxygen slowly starts to interact with the wine over, over a long period of time. Yeah. Things can come together. It can be smoothed out a lot if it's a really high tannic wine. Typically, those tannins can smooth out. The wines come together in a more balanced and nuanced way. And, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and try this wine. I'm going to smell it about a thousand times. 25-year-old wine. (laughs) Man, I can't believe 1994 is 25 years ago. I know. Ooh, that's interesting. (laughs) What is the word for that? I mean, it's a little uh, almost raisiny initially. Yeah, I could see that. There is something old about it. Yeah, it definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, you can tell like this is like not your average. I mean, when you get that oxygen interaction with it for so long, you do get a little bit of that dank quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not overpowering, but it's just there in the background. Yeah. bruised apple kind of <laughs> you know that's really funny but that's that's incredibly accurate bruised apple wow it's like you, and you mean the more you drink it the more brown you kind of see bruised apple man that is good i totally get that I mean, this still got a lot of, a lot of tannin, a lot of vibrant flavor to it. Yeah, it does, especially later on. So for particular wines, do they just not, they just don't release certain wines sometimes if the the creator wants to, let's say the creator wants something to age for 15 years, they they literally just sit on it for 15 years? Well, these people did. Um, they sit on a, not all wineries do this. Um, they just sit on certain library vintages of things for however long they want basically i mean they can recommend like you know we don't we think this wine will age for 20 plus years that doesn't mean you have to abide by that but sometimes they'll be like 
to us, they'll say like, oh yeah, we're going to release wines from 1998. This is a special like pre-sale. We've had these wines at the winery and we feel like right now is a good time to re-release them into the market. Um, And then you can special order them or something like that. But typically the wineries, if it's something this old that I have access to, they will they will hold it there until unless we request it or they like say, Hey, you can have this now, but just sell it before we send it to you basically. Okay. Hmm. But if you go to a winery, especially in Europe, um, and you go down to the caves where they keep a lot of their wines, a lot of back vintage wines, I mean, they'll have wines from different decades. Um, you'll be able to try stuff from like the 70s, 80s and just see how things have changed and, and evolved, you know, every 10 years or whatever you want to do. It's kind of cool of actually going and being there because you get to experience it at the source, you know. How open are some of these vineyards to to visitors just kind of seeing their, their process? Generally pretty I mean, extremely, and certainly in California and Oregon, I mean, they're extremely welcoming and open to just, even if you just kind of stumble up there, like, hey, what's going on? They're like, oh, yeah, come on in and mm-hmm. want to try this flight that we have. And, like, if you want to do a tour, you can, like, kind of like a brewery, yeah, okay. how accessible that is. But sometimes, like, just depends on the season. You know, people might not be there. You know, and sometimes you want to make an appointment if it's like a fancy champagne house you want to visit. You just make an appointment prior and they'll take you down to their caves and do a fancy presentation. And, uh, yeah, generally they want to show off. So, (laughs) yeah. And they're passionate about what they do. So they want to share it. Yeah, it makes complete sense. You would hope, you know. So. Yeah, because there's a certain level of artistry that goes along with it. Oh, yeah. I mean, they have people there specifically for, you know, giving tours. Like, that's what all they do during all of the year. You know, especially in Napa, because it's such a touristy place now. It's just like you have to have somebody designated to be like a bar manager or then a guy who's like let me give you a tour of our property and stuff and Mm. so yeah i would say especially here it's they're more than happy to see you because chances are you're going to spend some money too yeah right yeah i imagine so there aren't uh i'm assuming there aren't very many wineries or not wineries, but vineyards in North Carolina? There's actually a good amount. Um, so Winston-Salem and West, like Yadkin Valley, which is like foothills of the Appalachian Mountains okay. in North Carolina, is a pretty good terroir for... <laughs> throwing it back. For grape growing, even the noble varieties like Cabernet, Riesling, mm. does pretty well because it's so humid. That's a grape you want to get to full ripeness because Riesling can tend to be 
on the richer, fuller, sweeter side sometimes. Hmm. Um, but there's quite a lot. Actually, we're the seventh highest producing wine state in the country. Wow. Wow. Who's, I, don't, I don't know if it's good, but wow. Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal. A lot of people don't know. I mean, I want to say our revenue is maybe a little bit more wine than beer in North Carolina. And North Carolina is a massive beer, craft beer state. It's just... That's surprising. I think yeah. we also do, you know, like the Scuppernog and Muscadine, those sweeter stuff on the on the coast. Those tend to grow well on the eastern side of the state. Yeah. More humid sandier soils yeah right do well with the sweeter native vines that just grow here automatically you know um so like duplin is a big brand for that and they're a huge producer um so yeah i think that's a big factor are those wines but there's there's wineries popping up pretty frequently like in north carolina now and Virginia's huge too. That's Virginia's a little bit. I think the caliber and the quality is higher because they're a little bit higher up um, in elevation, and then it's just a. It, it gets cooler, and the soil is a little bit different, um, so they're able to do wines like Cabernet Franc is a big one here in Virginia that grows pretty well, um, and that's a grape that's really really does well in the Loire Valley of France. Hmm. Um, but yeah, Virginia, North Carolina, New York, um, and then Oregon, Washington, California, New Mexico, Arizona. Those are pretty big. Texas is getting into it now. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. But... Alaska. No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe ice wine. Ice wine. Which is a real thing. Um, okay. <laughs> actually, Canada makes some ice wine because the grapes have to actually freeze on the vine and then you press them. And then um, it's, it's like a dessert wine. It's like Germans do it a lot. But there's like mm. less and less ice vine in Germany now because global warming which it? isn't real which isn't right. real but Europeans would tell you that it is <laughs> <laughs> damn Europeans I know um, but I did have a sauterne which is a um, dessert wine in France uh-huh. that if you want to try that we could certainly do as the, as the last one. Oh, geez I might just have a to, tiny okay. taste <laughs> Okay. And you, you still haven't used this. You can still spit it out. Dude, dude I've been in America for too long. Dude, I can't I can't waste anything. I, I I have to get my obese status. Come uh, on. That's true. That's true. Well Sotown. Uh, Sotown. So, so okay. this is um so this is out of Bordeaux. This is actually a white dessert wine mm. um, of Sauvignon Blanc and Simeon. These are the two white grapes that they use. And so they wait until a fungus called botrytis develops 
on <laughs> on these grapes. It okay. imparts like a honey sweet. I mean, it, that I don't know how they figured this out. Yeah, but they've been doing it forever, and it's just like once you harvest those grapes, I mean, they look terrible. <laughs> I can imagine. And you press them, and then you ferment it. And it's just a really high residual sugar, sweet, honey, almost um, very viscous texture to it. Um, and people like this with uh, certain desserts as well. So I'll What's get. What's the name of the fungus? Botrytis, aka noble rot. Yes. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I would love to to to, to go to a winery rot. where they. They have a ritual. Botrytis, <laughs> show yourself, <laughs> noble rot. <laughs> yeah, there's just uh, an insane amount of, just, I don't know. It's just a, it's a wide world of things. So let me get that, and you can entertain the folks. Okay, folks, let me tell you a little bit about wine. So. Wine is a liquid that uh, is derived from the... Okay, <laughs> Kyle is informing it comes from grapes. Uh, so they squeeze grapes and they essentially choke them out. And uh, as the grapes are choked out, they're forced to produce alcohol. And... Uh, oh, Kyle's back, so I can stop bullshitting. Well, didn't listen to a word I said this whole time. <laughs> so, yes, typically comes in a half bottle size. Ah, uh, yes. I look forward to announcing Bortritis's appearance. <laughs> Arrival, yes. yes. So I'm, now, be, n- unlike port, this is not fortified, so it's not higher alcohol. Oh, good. This is not like a Thank dessert. Goodness. This is not like I'm struggling. a fortified wine. <laughs> And um, you can see even by the top of the cork, it yes. little, looks a little fungi-like. It does. does it not? I can't wait to consume this. <laughs> I think with this one, you can go ahead and open it. Because oh, wow. it is. it appears to me... It is not a... He failed. It appears it to does. me... It is not an original cork. Hey. Whoa. He was Nick listening. has learned. <laughs> huh. Yeah, it's it is synthetic. Let me describe the bottle for those of you listening. coming home from work. Uh, it is yellow, goldish, one might yeah. say. It, you know, if, if you didn't... Quite noble. If, noble, one might say, or you wouldn't... You wouldn't expect it to be filled with botrytis. No, you wouldn't. But uh, it, uh, yeah, it looks it's quite truly quite a golden classic. color. Yeah, it is. It is. And can you read the title of of this? La fleur d'or, which <laughs> translates to the flower of gold. Wow. Yeah. Gold they, it is. Indeed. And let me. So I'll pour a bit, and you swirl it around and dump because this is now a rinse. Okay. So swirl it around more. and then dump it. Just get rid of it. Get rid. Okay. I'm going to give myself a rinse. We're getting some extreme. Sometimes, sometimes I've noticed that, well, I'll do certain wine events and festivals and people will rinse 
So they'll go from one wine to another wine to another wine, but in between each one, they want to pour water in and rinse it out after each one. Just depends what you're going from. But typically, you want to rinse with the wine that you're about to taste. Okay. Because so, that then kind of cleanses the glass with that particular taste, that particular wine. I see. So after all these red wines, this looks like piss. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> yes. Someone not super hydrated. <laughs> not super hydrated. That's right, folks. This person, uh, Botrytis, was didn't drink a whole lot of water. But I think you might like this one. I mean, this is just... Uh, I'm looking forward to smelling it. Yeah, you should. It's probably the first time I've ever said that in my life. <laughs> yeah so you can see this is quite viscous yes does this apply to the crying to the death child rule um do you think it has a few tears yeah i don't know Sometimes when you smell, you have to close your eyes just to be, you just to put yourself there. To be right next to botrytis. <laughs> yeah. You ugly motherfucker. <laughs> I mean, it just looks like you would see that bunch of grapes and just be like, yeah, we need to throw that out now. Oh, yeah. Like if it was in your house or something. Yeah, right. It's bad. In and they're like, opinion. oh my God, it's here. Yeah. We must now harvest. Yeah. Our sotel. <laughs> oh yeah. That that smells like juice. Yep, very sweet. Yeah, for sure. Very sweet smelling. Oh, I like it. I like the smell. Yeah. It smells pretty good. Very rich. You ever worry about like when you get exposed to brand new things that you've never been exposed to? Do you ever wonder like, <laughs> am I going to have an allergic reaction to this? Like yeah. just your body's like, that was the one thing. Yeah. You're done. <laughs> well, I mean, Botrytis, you know. I don't. It only. <laughs> I'll drink first and then I'll tell you. <laughs> I do like the the smell quite a bit. It's a nice contrast from everything else we've we've had. Yeah, and the sweeter wines are ones that you want to. If you are doing a lineup of wines, you want to have at the end the yeah, ones with higher good. residual sugar. That's really good. Yeah. So that's something you could see would pair with like one of your mom's desserts. Right. Yeah. Apfelstrudel. Apfelstrudel. <laughs> Not dearly. <laughs> so yeah, this is um it's still pretty bright, but like, you know, just has a nice smooth, rich, honeyed texture. Texture. Yeah, that's pretty good. I can definitely understand why they would want to use this for dessert. Yeah. More of a... <clears throat> the Australians call these wines stickies. 
Yeah. And you can see why. I have no clue. Well, it kind of sticks to your mouth. Like syrupy almost. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. So what kind of dessert would you pair specifically with this? Uh, creme brulee. Ah, yes. Good answer. <laughs> Good answer. Or just like a um, ice cream sandwich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now we're getting sophisticated. Now we're cooking with fire. Um, so after tasting all these wines, was there a favorite? Did you learn anything? I Would you drink a, wine again? I learned a lot. I have drank wine in the past. <laughs> I would drink wine again because I, I enjoy it. Uh, and I I definitely gained a new appreciation, which I think is probably the coolest part about this whole entire that, podcast. That's the goal. Uh, that I definitely, because I would easily make, and I will make fun of people in the future still, even though I've gained a new appreciation for the different smells and stuff. That was the first time, like, back-to-back back, I was exposed to different wines, so I could totally tell the differences. Yeah. That was cool. Uh, my favorite was probably the Pinot Noir, wow, to be honest. Okay. The Pinot Noir, yeah. Fela. Yeah, that was the... Uh, the winner. The New World, right? Yep, New, new world. world Pinot Noir. That was a that was a really good one. I like the fourth one that we had the Ital. I think that was what. No, that wasn't the Italian one. That was the Napa Valley. Yeah, that was a really good one too. Arietta. Yeah, so those were kind of tied to me in, in the forefront of my mind. Okay. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I I really like the. Um, yeah, I mean, these two were great. I like the old Cabernet. Um, but yeah, I would say maybe the Arietta mm-hmm. was my favorite. But now maybe looking for wine in the future, you've sort of narrowed a Sonoma Napa area. At least now you know you might gravitate toward those wines. Yeah. More, but there's so many different regions more to explore and well, certainly, I would imagine beyond <laughs> the six wines with the same varietals. And yeah, yeah, but yeah, just uh, a nice lineup of different wine that express different things. Yeah. And now cool. we move to the Bush Mills, <laughs> <laughs> the whiskey tasting. Now. Yeah. We uh, we could, we could definitely do that in the future. Uh, that's that's going to be an interesting. Uh, I think I'll be a little more belligerent during well, this. You might use this more, the your spittoon more. In American fashion, it is unlikely that I will right. be I will be doing fine. that. That's fine. Uh, yeah, but yeah, we could definitely do a whiskey episode. It's I wouldn't call myself knowledgeable, but I have I have had the whiskey before, so yeah, yeah. I'm not an expert by any means on whiskey, but. Definitely enjoy it. We could do like a, you know, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ireland, that's Scotland. Good. Yeah, that's a really good, yeah, that's a good idea. Virginia. Virginia. <laughs> I always think about General Lee. Lee. Every time. <laughs> he was in Gettysburg. <laughs> uh, General Longstreet. <laughs> Bring him in round back. I always wonder what they drank then because they're definitely drinking. 
It's grain alcohol. Maybe, yeah. I would imagine. Well, especially the Confederates. They, they had even less money than, just the, swill. than the Union. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, I mean, is there any other, are there any other uh, questions you had? No, nothing that popped up over to the top of my head, but um, I'm sure in the future I'll be asking further questions as I think of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We did have a certain individual um, reach out um, who we've mentioned before on this podcast. Do we? I'm in the dark. <laughs> I was going to let Kyle take the well, lead he's on failed. this Well, he's failed miserably on several occasions in showing up uh-huh. to record, but he's requested a genuine request, which genuine. is genuine or not, I don't know, from him, but um, to be on the podcast um, okay. next time. So cool. Sure. Sounds <laughs> we'll good. figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's but, um, I'm cool either way. I'll be back in town uh, over Christmas, so maybe we can do the yeah. uh, whiskey episode then. That'd be great. When do you head out to Baltimore? Uh, I was thinking about leaving on Sunday, but it's supposed to rain a lot. And ever since I flew off the road um, in my BMW, that tell us uh, that story. <laughs> 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 If you want to relive that nightmare, I would love to relive (laughs) that that nightmare. Uh, Well, I was during my master's degree. I was at ECU, and I traveled back and forth between Raleigh and or Wake Forest and Greenville every weekend. And uh, I I was driving in the pouring rain back from Greenville on two sixty four. And uh, I went across a bridge. I had actually decreased my speed. I was not speeding, folks. I was actually ten under the speed limit. Mm. But because um, that's was, why you wrecked. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it was it was really pouring though, and that's why I was going uh, pretty slowly. And I went over this bridge, and then on the other side of the bridge, lo and behold, there was just a sheet of water, and mm. I thought. This is not going to go well. Yeah. <laughs> and just went over it as straight as I could. <laughs> and my the back of my car started wiggling. And then suddenly I was doing 360s. <laughs> and I went off the road and went off the highway. And uh, almost ended up in the uh, on the other side uh, across <laughs> the entire grass. And I was just slammed up against the side of my car. And... Uh, then, uh, now, why is that funny to me? I, <laughs> I don't know. I have no clue. <laughs> I have no fucking clue. Um, but uh, ended up stopping. But that's not the end of the story. Oh, I okay. have more. I have more to this story. Um, so the the guy that was behind me driving stopped, mm. which was nice of wow. him, very kind of him, and he called the the emergency uh, line and all that nine one one. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. All right. <laughs> and uh, they arrived. The uh, fire department came 
and uh, they were. Were you okay? <clears throat> yeah, I was a hundred percent fine. Hmm. No, no injuries whatsoever. Just mental. Damage. Yeah, just mental, like literally yeah. mental damage. PTSD. PTSD. That's right. I don't want to go that far. I didn't go to Iraq <laughs> or anything. Uh, <laughs> um, but they, but uh, they, they arrived and they just checked the scene out and they were like, "Okay, everything's fine." My car was a little fucked up. It was a little banged up, but nothing too crazy. But I didn't want to drive it anymore. Sure. So I called a, a wrecker, mm-hmm. and the wrecker came, and apparently the police came as well, just to again check the scene out and just make sure everything. No was foul all right. play. No foul play. <laughs> the wrecker puts the the car on the back of his uh, <laughs> truck. And after like an hour, and it's pouring rain this entire time. And then the wrecker, out of nowhere, we were, all three of us were standing in a triangle. And the police officer's like, well, all right, I'm glad everything's all right. I'm glad you're okay. Uh, see you later. Like, essentially, we were just saying goodbye. And the wrecker turns around, sees my tires on my car, and exclaims, wow, you've got really low tread on your tires right in front of the police officer. And the police officer goes, huh, walks over, looks at my tread, and he's like, yeah, that is pretty low. Stay here for a second. And he goes to his car and writes me a ticket. What? Yep. I wanted to fucking kill this dude. That was, And I had to sit in the car in the truck with him even for, longer. for like 45 minutes till we got back to my place. <laughs> Did you mention it? You're like, hey man. <laughs> um, nope. Didn't mention it. I was I was fuming. I um yeah. And wow. on the ticket it said, and I don't know if the police officer did this on purpose. <laughs> reckless or driving. Not. Uh it was no, it wasn't reckless driving, it was something under that. Um like harmful drive or whatever it is. Neglect to Yeah. <laughs> neglect to be for intelligent. Life, I don't know. <laughs> Low tread, <laughs> low tread, something. I don't know. It was, um, <laughs> but the the police officer wrote on the ticket. Uh, it said Damn. like the it says weather. Like it asks like what was the weather, and it said clear skies. And I had taken pictures, Dude. and it was just pouring rain. Like even in the pictures, you could see raindrops because it's it's just so thick. Um, yeah, so I just went to a lawyer and, and they were like, yeah, don't worry about it. It's not going to be, it's not yeah. going to be an issue because of exactly that. Like it, I, I had my pictures to prove that it was pouring rain. So, mm. um, yeah, so fun time. Well, you made it through. I did make it through. Yep. Yep. That was the end of my BMW though. Well, 325 IS. Good times. Broke down like five times. <laughs> Made a lot of repairs on it. A lot of money went into that. Yep. Stressed me out. Well, you've moved on. I have. <laughs> I've moved up to a Honda. A Honda Civic. Less repairs, I'm guessing. Zero repairs. Zero so far, repairs. Tread right, is folks. still dangerously low. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I transferred the tires from my BMW to the Honda. <laughs> Out of spite alone. <laughs> Out of spite alone. Yeah. It's literally just the metal mesh now. It's not even any rubber left. There's <laughs> no regard for anyone but himself. <laughs> With this low dread trying to kill everybody on the road. Uh, 
You need to go to the grocery store, Cal. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. can drive you. Right. <laughs> it's just downpouring now. Let's go. Oh, man. <laughs> now, ever since that, I've been pretty paranoid about my tread. I don't think it would have made a difference. That was a, that was like a lake of water in front of me. <laughs> but you I sped up when you saw it. <laughs> Dude, no. Of course I didn't <laughs> the <speed> report said. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. I was <laughs> making shit up. <laughs> Oh man! So yeah, that's my story of how I crashed my car. It's a good one. It is a good one. It's no one was irritating. Harmed. That's even no one was harmed except for the me. BMW. Uh, yeah, my BMW. That's what matters. <laughs> <laughs> my 1995 BMW. Yeah. Was it an M series? It was not an uh, M series. I, I I did not have the money for an M series. I okay. just had a old nineteen ninety five E thirty six, three twenty five. Ah yes, it was a good. It was a fun car. It was a fun car. But I'm happy with my Honda. If you want to go fast, buy a motorcycle, folks. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yep. Now, when's the last time you rode your motorcycle? Uh, this week. Oh, with your dad? No, no. I haven't I haven't rid, ridden with him in a while, which is kind of a shame. It's it fun. Is, yeah, I used to used to go all the way to the coast with with my dad on his motorcycle. Good times. Well, yeah, I do remember when you when you did that. You would ride in the basket and in the basket. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> six, I don't know if you guys Nick. have seen ET, <laughs> but ET was in that front basket and he had a little blankie on him. Mm-hmm. And that's how Nick would ride to the coast. <laughs> but but he ne- yeah, he never forgot it. And now he has a moto of his own. I do have a moto of my own. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Tim Perfect mug. What about Your it? Father's um, mug. Yeah. Would he sponsor us? Would he just give us a mug if we gave him a? A, a shout out an ad because we're reaching people he never would be able to reach. that's true we are reaching billions at this point yeah i don't know i'll have to i'll have to talk to him about it we're uh i mean we're we're not we're not like begging for sponsors or anything we no. got a lot lined up yeah we're a just a lot lined up. we want to do sponsors we believe in we so, believe yeah. in exactly yeah, we can get behind yeah so please call us <laughs> please god damn it this costs a lot of money to do this production uh, value doesn't you know a whole production company yeah a whole production company goes behind it yeah so if you love podcasting if you love us yeah of the you have a heart (laughs) if you have a heart uh, it's fine if you don't but Uh, I think on that note, you want to finish things off? Yeah, I think uh, we're pretty much done. We're, we've tried all the wines we wanted to try today, and hopefully people learned something, maybe gained a new appreciation, maybe want to branch out outside of what they normally drink. Um, yeah, feel get free off the beer, you Neanderthals. Get off the beer or explore a new region in the wine world this week just for your own educational purposes 
And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us via Homespun Yak. And uh, we'll definitely answer. And um, If you get an answer from me on wine, just know it's all bullshit. Like, uh, straight up, just wait for Kyle to answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no denial, which I respect. No. But, um, but, yeah, we'll see you very soon. And hopefully everybody had a good Thanksgiving. Yeah. And we will be back next week. Sounds good. Catch you in the next one, folks. See ya.